Well, please open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Our passage for this morning is 1 Corinthians 7, verses 17 through 24. Once again, that's 1 Corinthians 7, 17 through 24. There is something incredibly American about ambition. You think about just what it is that we would say makes our nation great. And I know a lot of times we'll say that it's the freedom we enjoy as a people, or perhaps we'll even point to our democratic system of government. But I don't think that's really it. I think instead what we love about our country is captured in those immortal words, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That phrase from the opening lines of the Declaration of Independence, particularly that phrase, the pursuit of happiness, that describes what we think is truly great about our country. It describes even what our freedom is for. It describes what our democratic processes stand for. And that's the idea that not only are all men theoretically equal under the law, but by virtue of that equality, equally mobile. In short, what we think is truly great about our country is the idea that anyone can come to this country and more or less become anything they want to be. Ours is the land of opportunity. It's the nation where uh, the clever and hardworking cashier can become a CEO, where the child who is born into poverty can not only become the first member of their family to attend college, but perhaps even one day become a Nobel Prize winning scientist or a best-selling author. It's the land of no limits, of endless upward mobility. We're a nation of achievers. We love to hear stories about how companies like Apple and Microsoft started in a garage or about how Abraham Lincoln was born in a log cabin. We don't resent men like John D. Rockefeller or Sam Walton or Walt Disney for their wealth and fame. Instead, we tend to admire them for their ability to climb their way out of obscurity and make something of themselves. They are, for us, the embodiment of what we call the American dream. They're proof of the fact that in America, you really can become or do anything. It makes sense that we would think this way as Americans. After all, we're a nation of immigrants. We're not like other countries whose citizens have lived there for generations immemorial. No, what almost all of us share in common, at least most everyone here in this congregation, is that we're descended from people who at some point chose to leave their homeland, the land of their native tongue, the land of their ancestors, and everything familiar in order to begin a new life in a strange land, a land that they believed was filled with promise and opportunity. And that in order to better themselves, in order to improve their condition. And so achievement, even change, progress, upward mobility, it's all very second nature for us. In fact, I think it's more than second nature, it's expected. There seems to be this cultural expectation in our nation that subsequent generations are going to build on the success of previous generations. They don't need to reach the top necessarily, but they need to at least make progress. They need to improve their status in this world. And if they don't, 
Well, then they're failures. They've squandered what their parents have built for them. To what degree is this concept biblical? What does God think about spiritual ambition? I think immediately of 1 Timothy 3.1, where Paul says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. That seems to present ambition in at least a somewhat positive light, doesn't it? There's at least one thing that Paul says it's a good thing to strive for, to aspire to, the office of overseer. I think as well of Paul's words in Romans 15, 20, where he says that he makes it his ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest he build on someone else's foundation. Now, clearly, that's a, that's a good kind of ambition, isn't it? To proclaim the gospel and proclaim it broadly to as many people as you can. I mean, you look at Paul, and it's hard to say that he was anything but an incredibly driven individual, right? Later here in 1 Corinthians, for instance, he'll speak of the spiritual life in terms of a race and encourage the Corinthians to run that they may win the prize. As he nears death in 2 Timothy 4, 7 and 8, he writes, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. That sounds like an ambitious person, doesn't it? Paul is anticipating the reward that he's going to receive at the end of his race. How does all this work? This is a question that the Corinthians are wrestling with here in 1 Corinthians 7. Now, Corinth, you may remember, was a city not entirely unlike a city that you might find here in America. There's probably quite a bit that we'd share in common, actually, like America, Corinth, was individualistic, materialistic, pluralistic, and economically prosperous. Even more than this, it was a city that, in its Roman iteration, was actually founded to give Roman freedmen, former slaves, a place where they could go to make something of their freedom instead of sitting around and causing problems in the empire. Meaning this was a city of opportunity. It was a place where people would go to make their fortune, to make something of themselves. In other words, Corinth was the place where the ambitious went. In fact, the people there were so ambitious that it was a notoriously vicious place, both socially and economically. There was even a proverb at the time which said, Not for every man is the voyage to Corinth, and it essentially meant only the tough survive there. Not just anyone can survive in Corinth. A second century writer by the name of Alciphron explained why he stayed away from Corinth after visiting once, saying, I learned in a short time the nauseating behavior of the rich and the misery of the poor. This was a city separated between the haves and the have-nots. To quote one author, to use terms from American culture, schmoozing, massaging a superior's ego, rubbing shoulders with the powerful, pulling strings, scratching each other's back, and dragging rivals' name through the mud, all describe what was required to, assist, to attain success in this society. Friends, this is a people I think we can understand. They're driven in the same way that so many of us are driven as Americans. Well, this ambition, this desire for status and success is, 
you can only expect it translated into the church. These same people who came to Corinth in hopes of striking it rich or who grew up in Corinth, saturated and shaped by this cultural atmosphere, it wasn't as if their thinking about status and success immediately changed once they became a Christian. No, they brought that attitude with them. You see it all throughout this letter. You have these rivalries that we learn about in chapter 1, wherein the Corinthians are, are lining up behind whatever teacher they think offers the best set of advantages, the teacher they believe to be the wisest in his thinking, the best. Uh, they even appear to use this as a basis for boasting before each other. They're saying, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Christ. In chapters 3 and 4, we discover that many of them were apparently looking down on Paul thinking him inferior to themselves, and that was at least partly due to the fact that they were prospering while Paul was suffering for his faith. This is apparently one sign of success for them, or at least some of them. They think their ease and comfort is a sign of God's pleasure, his favor. God uh, likes them. Paul has to actually explain that all of this is actually a sign of their unfaithfulness. And this is only the beginning. In chapter 11, we'll see that even in the way they're celebrating the Lord's table, they're making distinctions among themselves between rich and poor. In chapter 12, that competition will be expressed in their boasting over their spiritual gifts. Friends, this is most definitely not a fully sanctified church. They've brought their ambition with them through the doors. And they're competing with one another within the church, just as they did with their neighbors outside of it. It's the same thing that's going on here in chapter 7. I know that's probably sad news for some of you. It's been sort of a roller coaster as we've been working our way through 1 Corinthians. We're going through chapters 5 and 6, and one man is living with his stepmother, and the church is fine with it. Another group of Corinthians are apparently going to prostitutes, or at least considering that. And you're thinking to yourself, are these people even Christian? I mean, how can any of this be okay and then we get to chapter 7. And not only do we discover that all of this is happening because of a sincere misunderstanding about the body, but there are even some Corinthians who are trying to abstain from all sexual relations as a means of dedicating themselves completely to Jesus Christ. And, you know, finally, you think, a redeeming quality. It may even be sort of humbling to hear, for instance, that some of the Corinthians may be considering divorcing their spouses for this reason, because you've never even considered that as a possibility. Well, if that's you, if you've been encouraged by the incredible devotion that the Corinthians seem to be expressing in this latest section of 1 Corinthians, I have some bad news for you. It's more than likely rooted in pride. <laughs> that's sort of sad, I know, but the truth is that this is just another expression of Corinthian ambition. Keep in mind, they're boasting over the man living with his stepmother. They think that's an expression of their spiritual maturity. It's the same with the ones visiting the prostitutes. They think that's a sign of their understanding of the gospel. It all plays into this partisanship and rivalry occurring in the church. The one th side thinks their knowledge is demonstrated in their engagement in sexual immorality. Guess what the other side thinks? They think it's expressed in their abstention from it. It's all rooted in the same heart. They're all trying to prove 
that they're more spiritual than the rest, that they're a better Christian than the rest. And this group that's abstaining, they're no different. They think that this is a sign of their spiritual maturity, their spiritual status. They're saying, you want to see how spiritual we are? We're completely removing ourselves from the concerns of this world by abstaining from sex with our spouse, by perhaps even divorcing them and living like the angels. We're completely devoted to Christ. Have you ever seen this happen in the church? Have you ever seen this attitude expressed among Christians? Of course you have. You know, maybe not the whole divorcing my wife to be devoted to Christ thing. I doubt you've probably seen that. But you've definitely seen spiritual competition taking place in the church. And I would bet that you've most definitely seen this attitude which says that a Christian is more mature or more spiritual if they devote themselves completely to some particular aspect of Christian service. Let me give you an example. Have you ever heard the story of William Borden? William Borden was born into a wealthy Chicago family. Now, that was not the Borden family, the one who founded the company that we know today as Borden Incorporated, you know, Borden Milk and all of that. Uh, William's father made his fortune in the mining business, mining silver in the hills of Colorado. Still, his family was rich. They were millionaires, actually. And yet, in spite of their riches, William chose to become a missionary. His desire was to preach Christ to the Uyghur Muslims of uh, northwestern China. And so, after graduating first from Yale and then Princeton, he set out for Egypt, where he planned to learn Arabic before eventually venturing on to China. Sadly, though, William wasn't there long before he contracted cerebral meningitis and died. He was 25. As the legend goes, and just to be clear, it does appear to be somewhat of a legend, but as the legend goes, his mother found three phrases written in his Bible upon his death. The first was written shortly after he determined to leave his life of wealth and comfort to become a missionary. It said, no reserve. The second phrase was supposedly written after he graduated from Yale and turned down several lucrative job offers. It said, no retreat. Finally, there was a phrase he had written shortly before he died in Egypt, and it read, no regrets. Now, what do you think about William Borden? I mean, no doubt his devotion to Christ is admirable. I don't think anyone can deny that. That's the very thing that apparently stood out to everyone he, who knew him. He was incredibly devoted to Christ. But listen, what if William had simply decided to stay at home? Suppose he had decided to pick up the family business, build his wealth, and use what he earned to send other missionaries onto the field. Would that have made him any less devoted to Christ? Any less spiritual? Think about all those Christian businessmen who decided to do exactly that. You've probably never heard of any of their biographies. Why not? For that matter, what about any kind of missionary, period, in comparison with the non-missionary? Do you think them to be a better or more mature Christian than those who stay at home? There can be this thought within the church that anyone who's really serious about their faith will become a missionary or a pastor. Uh, I can remember, for instance, before I became a Christian, that as I began to read the Gospels and how Christ was calling his disciples to total devotion, to be willing to leave everything to follow him, 
And as I began to be convicted by that call, that I started to think that God must be calling me to the mission field. After all, I thought, giving all your life to Christ, I mean, that's something only super spiritual people do. That's something only missionaries do. It's that sort of mindset that I'm talking about here. And this is all that the Corinthians are doing here in chapter 7, only they're doing it with respect to sex. Like the monk who takes a vow of celibacy and joins a monastery in an effort to live a more devoted and spiritual kind of life, so also are these Christians seeking to express their spiritual devotion, their spiritual superiority even, by taking a vow of celibacy. Within marriage, if possible, but through divorce, perhaps, if necessary. Is that how spiritual ambition works? Is one required to sometimes fundamentally alter their position in this world in order to climb rank in the kingdom of heaven? Or will a change in status necessarily make someone a better Christian? That's what we're going to be looking at together over the next couple of weeks as we explore Paul's words to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 7, 17 through 24. Let's go ahead and read this passage together and find out what he has to say. Again, verses 17 through 24. Paul writes, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. One of the things that's rather ironic about the Corinthians is that they actually thought of themselves as spiritually mature people. Again, that's ironic considering the types of issues they're wrestling with and even practicing. I mean, you look at it, and this church actually comes across as perhaps the most immature church in the entire New Testament. Again, Paul even says as much back in chapters 2 and 3. He tells them after spending more than a year and a half with them, far more time than he spent in many other churches, he tells them, I actually couldn't get into the more substantial wisdom that I had to offer you at that time, and that's ultimately why you think I'm so simple. And he says, I taught simply because I was speaking to spiritual children. (laughs) This is an incredibly immature church. Still, what this pride teaches us about the Corinthians is that they were still a spiritually ambitious people. Again, there may have been some impure motives driving that ambition, but all the same, they were interested in advancing as far as they could in the Christian faith, at least the group that we're encountering here in chapter 7. They're trying to give absolutely all of themselves to Jesus Christ. For the past several verses, Paul has been explaining how that kind of dedication might work counter to what is truly profitable in Jesus Christ. He's shown them how such steps might actually hinder the spiritual growth of those around them. Their believing spouses, for instance, may not be able to remain dedicated to Christ if they pursue that kind of personal dedication. Their unbelieving spouses may actually never turn and dedicate themselves to Christ if they were to pursue that kind of 
personal dedication. Even themselves, as noble as they, the idea might be, if God has not equipped them for it, then not even they may remain completely devoted to Christ if they were to pursue that kind of personal dedication. Friends, what you have to understand is how this sort of news is going to frustrate this kind of a Christian. I don't know if you identify with this kind of a Christian or not. I don't know how ambitious you are personally. But me, listen, I get this. I'm an ambitious person. I grew up in a family that in many ways embodied the American dream. I grew up hearing people tell me, you can do anything you want when you, can grow, when you grow up. And you know what guys like me hear when they hear Paul say something like this? They hear, you're limited. Your potential is capped. Don't have the gift of singleness? Too bad. You'll never be as great as a guy like Paul. Married? That's tough, I guess. You'll never be able to be as completely devoted to Christ as a guy like Paul is. And that's not something we like to hear. My wife is the same way, by the way. Neither one of us likes to be told you can't do something. We think I can do it all. I can achieve anything. You know, I'm the kind of guy who reads verse 9 sort of like a dare, a challenge. Paul says, you know, if you have this gift, and I want to say, don't tell me I don't have the gift of singleness. Just watch. As you can imagine, that sort of thinking can get a person into trouble pretty quick because there are limitations on our abilities. And when you realize that, it can be sort of discouraging, incredibly frustrating, even sort of hopeless, really. What you hear is you'll never be able to do what you want to do. You'll never be able to be what you want to be. You'll always fall short of your full potential. You can't do it. That may not be very discouraging for a person who lacks ambition. But for someone who wants to reach the top, it's incredibly discouraging. So what does Paul have to say to that kind of a Christian, to the one who may not only be striving to become the most that they can possibly be in Christ, but who also may be frustrated by the counsel that he's just offered? He says, remain as you are. He says, don't feel this pressure to strive to become something, quote-unquote, more than what you already are in Christ. He says, actually, don't, you don't have to change your status at all, whatsoever, in order to be completely dedicated to Christ. Meaning you aren't actually limited in any way by your current condition. All your spiritual ambitions for greatness can be fulfilled just exactly where you are. And then he provides what are essentially two reasons why this is so. Why change is unnecessary to fulfill one's spiritual ambitions. We're going to look at just the first of these two reasons this week. The admonition to remain in their current state is found in verse 17. There Paul says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. The reasons that Paul provides for this admonition are in the verses that follows. And the first reason is this. He says, remain as you are because dedication is expressed through obedience, not status. Once again, change is not necessary to fulfill one's spiritual ambitions because dedication is expressed through obedience, not status. We see this in verses 18 to 19. 
He says, was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Once again, we're talking about spiritual ambition here this morning, and it's probably helpful at this point to distinguish between two different types of ambition that can exist within the Christian. The first is what you might call an ambition of doing. This is the kind of ambition that Paul expresses when he says in Romans 15 that he makes it his ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been been named, lest he build on someone else's foundation. There he has this desire to do something, right? He wants to see the gospel advance to the praise and glory of God. It's an ambition that's shared by many Christians when they decide, for instance, that they want to go to seminary or perhaps become a missionary like Paul. They're, They're making a change in their status, you might say, You know, William Borden is leaving behind his wealth and prosperity in America because he has this ambition to see the gospel proclaimed among the Uyghur Muslims of northwestern China. The second kind of ambition is what you might call an ambition of being. This is an ambition not to do something great, but to be something great. You think of James and John, for instance, and they request, they make this request to sit on Jesus' right and left in the kingdom of heaven. And their ambition there is not to do something great, but to be something great. They want this position of status. They want to achieve, not in terms of accomplishing something, but in terms of rising to the top of a social, or you might even say spiritual echelon. You know, the Bible actually never discourages either kind of ambition. Take this idea of doing something great. You think about what we studied last week in Sunday school, for instance, and we saw down the very first pages of Scripture that God has a purpose for us, that there's something he wants us to do, and that's glorify his name by exercising dominion over the earth on his behalf. In other words, ours is not a purely passive kind of existence. It's not as if God expects us to simply sit back and do nothing While he takes care of everything for us, yes, there is a day of rest that he's designed for us, so it's not all work. Even more than this, it's not as if the work we do, we do on our own, apart from God's grace. Quite the the contrary, the only way that we'll ever find success in our labors is if God blesses our efforts and produces the result. And we rest in God in this sense, even when we work. Still, this is not the same thing as saying that God expects us to do nothing. His is a mediated rule. He wishes to exercise his dominion over the earth, including the dominion that comes through the preaching of the gospel through mankind. So the Bible does encourage us to be ambitious in this sense, in terms of accomplishing something. And that's important, by the way, because as we said last week in Sunday school, without that expectation that there's some reason for our effort, we would do nothing. It's hard to get out of the bed in the morning and go to work if there's no kind of reward for your labor. You almost need to have some sense of of progress, of meaning or or purpose in order to maintain the motivation to do anything. It's no different spiritually. You won't pray if you don't think prayer changes or produces anything. You won't evangelize if you think your evangelism doesn't play an instrumental role in salvation. 
In the same way, the Bible also encourages us to be great. You think about Jesus' words to Peter in Matthew 19, for instance. When Peter wants to know what's in it for us. We've left everything to follow you. And it's clear that Jesus encourages Peter with the promise of what you might call status. He says, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who's left houses, or brothers, or sister, or father, or mother, or children, or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold, and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. He promises a kind of status. He says they'll sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel as a reward. Now, make no mistake, there's definitely some confusion, I think, about what this status is for. James and John, for instance, think it's so that others can serve them, right? Jesus corrects them and points out that authority in God's economy, right, is rather distributed so that the one who has authority can serve those under their authority. It's granted so the one who receives the authority can give with it right? The greatest among you shall be your slave, Jesus says. So this isn't status in the way that the world thinks of status, or even in the way that the Corinthians seem to be thinking about status. But all the same, you can't get past this. The Bible consistently encourages the believer to faithfulness with the promise of a personal reward for their efforts. Paul, for instance, says in 2 Corinthians 5, 9 and 10, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Why? Listen to what he explains. He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. I should probably give you some insight into what drove Paul to exert himself the way he did. He had this expectation of a reward for his suffering. Indeed, Hebrews 11.6 actually tells us that it is impossible to please God without believing, A, that he exists, and B, that he rewards those who seek him. What the Bible discourages, though, is the idea that this reward will be awarded on the basis of what we produce. Or to put it another way, our ambition to do should not necessarily be shaped or directed by our ambition to be. There's not really a direct correlation between those two concepts. A Charles Spurgeon, for instance, will not necessarily be compensated anymore for the number of converts that were produced under his ministry than what you might find under the ministry of a guy like Jeremiah. Reason being, the individuals involved aren't responsible for the outcomes of their efforts. There's a a combination of giftedness, which comes from God, and God's grace in the life of their hearers, even the position that God places them in in life. So they're not responsible for the outcome. What they're responsible for is their faithfulness. This is what you discover in passages like the parable of the talents, for instance, where the master returns and tells the servant with the two talents and the servant with the five talents, both... Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Jeremiah Jeremiah may not have had the fruit to his ministry that a Charles Spurgeon might have, but you can't deny his faithfulness. And it's in response to that faithfulness, that dedication, that he will be compensated, not according to the outcome of his service. 
It's very important that a person grasp this, since otherwise they will end up in a very works-oriented kind of service. After all, if I'm rewarded for what I produce, then it's very easy to come away thinking that in my labor I'm doing something for God. That's even evident in the fact that that system requires that I believe that I'm somehow accountable for the product of my labor. And so this puts all the pressure and responsibility for what I produce on me. But if I'm rewarded instead for my dedication to God, for my faithfulness, then not only does it take away that kind of pressure to perform, but it also means that really my primary job is to be like a Mary and worship. I'm no longer focusing on the outcome of my work, but on the means. And this means that my goal is really just to know God and walk in fellowship with him. Even in my ambition to do, it's not being driven by this thought that to receive extra reward, I have to produce Y amount for God. Instead, it's being driven by this understanding that greatness in God's eyes is expressed in faithfulness and dedication. And so if in the end I choose to do, if I'm ambitious in this sense, it's being driven first by a desire to know God and to express my gratitude to him. All in all, I end up as the receiver in the relationship once again, with God as the giver. The Corinthians, for their part, seem to have a relatively clear understanding of this much. Again, they're trying to be something. They're ambitious in this sense, but they seem to grasp the idea that this comes not so much according to what they produce for God, but according to the degree that they're dedicated to God. That's what they're striving for. They're striving for absolute dedication. There's a sense in which you can say that they're not trying to become excellent in what they produced for God. They're trying to excel in what they receive from God. They're trying to strive in their worship. They get this much. What they don't seem to grasp, though, is what this dedication looks like. They think that in order to achieve total dedication to Christ, that one may have to change some fundamental aspect of who they are. They think that there are some people who are able to be more dedicated to God by virtue of the status they hold in life than others, chiefly, in this instance, single people. Now, to be clear, we're not talking about dedication in this sense of ambition to do right now. I think there's a sense in which you could say that the single person does possess some unique advantages as it relates to what they may be able to accomplish for God. I don't think that that's only advantages for the single person, but they have some unique advantages that the married person might not. Still, that kind of ambition is not what's driving the Corinthians' preference for singleness. They're not thinking about what they can do for God with their singleness. They're thinking of this being side to things, and they're thinking more in ascetic terms. It's good for a man not to touch a woman, they asserted back in verse 1. If I could put it this way, they think that dedication is expressed more in ceremonial terms. And this seems to be where this reference to circumcision comes up in verses 18 and 19. In context, there doesn't seem to be any indication that the Corinthians struggled with the notion of circumcision like what, say, the the Galatians did. If anything, what Paul is probably doing here is taking a concept that they're already familiar with and agree with and using it to illustrate his point. 
He's saying, look, it's not as if circumcision means anything, right? So what makes you think that singleness would? In the Old Testament, circumcision served as a sign that marked a person and made them a member of the people of Israel. If a person was not circumcised and they were cut off, excluded from the people of Israel, God says in Genesis 17, 14, Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. In this sense, circumcision was a necessary requirement to be a part of the people of Israel. In fact, I think there's a, an argument to be made based off of passages like Acts 26, 17 through 26, that it is still a requirement to be a member of the people of Israel, to be a, a part of that people in terms of what they're doing under the Abrahamic covenant, which is this covenant in which God promised to use Israel to bless all the nations of the earth. And in this sense, circumcision served as a mark that set a man apart for that particular type of service. It was an expression of the fact that a man had been set apart by God to serve as one of God's instruments in the blessing of the nations. But that being said, what circumcision is not required for is salvation. A person doesn't need to become a Jew in order to be saved. In fact, what God begins to disclose as we move through the Old Testament, in which Paul affirms later on in the New Testament, is that not every man who's been circumcised actually lives up to that calling. Indeed, what we discover as we move through the Old Testament is that this was the case for most of Israel. And this is even why, beginning as early as Deuteronomy 30, Moses begins to tell the people of Israel, there's a day coming when God is going to circumcise your hearts. We later find out that God says it with respect to the coming Holy Spirit, who, God explains, will cleanse a person from the inside and cause them to walk in accordance with his commandments. Paul explains later on in Romans 9 that this is Ultimately, what makes someone a true child of promise? He affirms in Romans 9, 6, that not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. He says that not every Abrahamic descendant is a child of promise. And he points to Esau, of course, as just one example. As he explains earlier in Romans, actually, all the way back in chapter 2, he says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Now, by this, Paul is not saying that a person is automatically a Jew if they obey the law. Instead, his point is that Judaism is not a matter of circumcision only, that a Jew who is circumcised inwardly by the Holy Spirit is, in a sense, more Jewish, truly Jewish, than the one who has the marks of circumcision but does not obey the law. That a person could be circumcised and still, in a sense, not be truly Jewish. As he explains in Romans 2, 26 and 27, the two verses immediately preceding the ones I just read to you, he says, So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. The Old Testament was always crystal clear on this point. What God desires is not mere ceremonial law keeping, but purity of heart. It's what he explains in Isaiah 1 when he says, I'm sick of your sacrifices. They make me nauseous. 
He says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. That's what he means when he says in Isaiah 29, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. It's what he flat out says in Hosea 6.6 when he says that he has hewn Judah with the prophets and his judgment goes forth as light, quote, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God has always said that obedience is what he truly desired and that this only comes through the Holy Spirit. What guys like Peter and perhaps even at first Paul, what they misunderstood at first is that this could all come to the Gentiles apart from the marks of circumcision. This is what men like Cornelius proved. You don't have to be a Jew to be pleasing to God because what God desires is obedience and obedience comes through the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is given through faith in Jesus and not by the works of the law, not by circumcision. And so circumcision is really nothing in the grand scheme of things. From the perspective of blessing, of favor in God's sight, this is this kind of spiritual status. It means absolutely nothing. A person is not better off as a Jew than the non-Jew, since as Paul states here in verse 19, what matters is keeping the commandments of God. Listen, if anyone stood to understand this point, it would be the Corinthians. Keep in mind, they think of themselves as an especially spiritual people. They understand the importance of the Holy Spirit. Paul's whole point is to say to them, how is this any different with singleness? He says, you already know how it works with circumcision. Why do you think it's any different with singleness? What matters to God is not some external status, be it circumcision or ethnicity or sex, meaning biological sex, male and female. He doesn't care if you're rich or poor. What matters is one's obedience to God. Just like what Jesus says in Matthew 15, it's not what goes into a person that defiles them, but what comes out of them. It's who they are in their heart, which is ultimately expressed not in some arbitrary external status. It's expressed in what they do. So why would it be any different with marriage? Why would God think anyone better for being unmarried and thereby unengaged in any kind of sexual relationship than if they are? The answer is, of course, he wouldn't think that. Not unless, of course, you're starting to imply that all sex is sin, which Paul actually indicates is the teaching of demons in 1 Timothy 4. God created sex. Of course, it isn't bad. So if it isn't bad, what's the issue, right? Obedience is what matters to God, not status. And sex isn't disobedience. This is the point that Paul is making here this morning. And today I want you to fix your attention on just this one point for two reasons. First, I want you to understand that when Paul says to the Corinthians, remain as you are, what he is not intending to communicate is that all change is bad. I think we're going to try to develop this point a little more as we get into our second reason why change is unnecessary next week. Because as we get into the next part of this text, I think we'll see Paul actually does encourage some kinds of changes. And we'll spend a little bit more, uh, of time exploring why he might encourage that to sort of get a better grip on this remain-as-you-are principle. 
But even before we get there, I want you to observe this point so that you don't come away from today's text unnecessarily frustrated by some kind of spiritual ambition that you may have in your heart. I think of myself, for instance, and if someone had told me 15 years ago, you know, Paul says you shouldn't go to seminary because you need to remain in the condition that you were in when you were called. I would have been incredibly frustrated. Again, I'm an ambitious person. I'm passionate about the gospel. And honestly, there would have been few things as depressing to me at that time than to have been told you need to spend the rest of your life counting basketballs and footballs. Like what I was doing when I worked for Wilson Sporting Goods. That's not what Paul is saying here. Paul is not telling a William Borden, don't leave your wealth behind to become a missionary. He's just saying, don't think you need to do that to be more dedicated to God, to be a more faithful Christian. If you're talking about ambition in this doing sense, that's fine. There's a lot that can be done for the kingdom in that sphere. And you're definitely free to do it. Just don't think that you must do it in order to be more pleasing to God. So if that's that's you and that's what you're walking away with from this passage today, don't get frustrated. Paul is not telling the William Carey's of the world, when God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. He's telling them, if you have that ambition, that's good. Just don't think it necessarily makes you better or more pleasing to God. Dedication is a matter of obedience, not status. That's something that I could obviously fulfill as an inventory control supervisor for Wilson Sporting Goods, or that William Borden could fulfill as the heir of a silver tycoon, or that William Carey could fulfill as a shoemaker. So if that's the motivation that's driving that sort of a decision, if you're making that kind of a change because you think it's going to make you great, this desire to attain some kind of spiritual status before God, stop. It's not necessary. In fact, if that's the motivation, that you would do something like that in order to be great, I'd probably tell you that not only is it not, not, not necessary, but that you probably need to stop. Because the venture that you're about to embark on is not only not pleasing to God, it's displeasing. It's nothing more than rank self-righteousness. But if, on the other hand, you're trying to make that kind of a change because, like a William Carey or like a William Borden, you care about the fate of the heathen, that's a different matter entirely. Paul's not addressing that kind of ambition here. You're free to do as you please and make that kind of a change. Again, that's one reason why I want you to focus on this point today. I want to sort of hem in Paul's command to remain as you are here so you don't walk away thinking that he's saying more than what he is and come away frustrated by your inability to fulfill what might be a very good spiritual ambition. The second reason is because if you do think that there are some positions, be it in life generally or in the church specifically, that are uniquely better than others, more pleasing to God, And if you're frustrated because you think you're in some way restricted from attaining one of those positions or some status that you think is better than another, and you're ambitious like I am, I want to encourage you by letting you know it's not true. There's nothing about your current position that's limiting your spiritual potential. Keep in mind, this is how the Corinthians are feeling. There are married Christians who are thinking that because of their marital status, they are in some sense spiritually inferior. They may even be considering the option of divorce in order to remedy their situation, except that Paul tells them they can't. They're going to be tempted to think that their spiritual ambitions are therefore going to be frustrated by their marriage. 
Paul is telling them, listen, there's nothing wrong with you. You can reach your spiritual potential just exactly where you are. It's not a matter of status. It's a matter of obedience. And that's something that anyone can achieve, no matter their situation. And this means that, at least as this ambition of being goes, there are no limits. You don't have to become a pastor, for instance, in order to be great in God's eyes, or travel to some exotic place as a missionary. You don't have to be a gifted speaker and lead thousands to Christ like a George Whitfield or a Charles Spurgeon. You don't have to surrender all your wealth like a William Borden. All you need to do is simply serve Christ to the best of your ability in whatever role God has assigned you, with whatever sphere of influence he's placed you in. I tell you, I hope that that's a relief. You take something like the office of elder, which the New Testament restricts to men, and if the idea was that position did matter to God, or that God did reward a person on the basis of what they produce, then I would imagine that this would be sort of frustrating for a woman. Because that restriction would appear to cap their spiritual potential. I know I would certainly be frustrated if that's what I believed and I were a woman. But thankfully, that's not what the New Testament teaches. Instead, what Paul says here is that it is obedience that matters to God, not status. Male, female, it makes no difference in the end, at least not with respect to this ambition to be. The only thing that matters is faithfulness. To what degree does a man exercise the responsibilities he has as a man? To what degree does a woman exercise the responsibilities she has as a woman? That is the standard by which each will be judged. This is what passages like the parable of the talents tell us. The man may have a greater kind of responsibility in the church, the woman a lesser degree of responsibility. All that matters in the end is what they did with what they were responsible for. That is what they will be rewarded for before God. I hope that's encouraging for you. I hope perhaps even a little exciting. Hopefully there's some motivation that starts to flow out of this as you begin to think, what can I do right now in whatever station God has placed me in to the glory of God? Because the opportunity, friends, it's there. And if that's not encouraging for you, suppose you lack that kind of ambition. Well, I'll, I'll get to you next week as we get into the second reason why change is unnecessary for the spiritually ambitious. And that's because dedication is a matter of perspective, not status. It's not just expressed in obedience, not status, but it's also a matter of perspective, not status. What do I mean by that? We'll explore the answer together in part two of this message next week. In the meantime, let's close with prayer.